0: <clears throat> hey, everyone. It's, uh, it's Dave Barnett here with another one of our Holiday Chat 2019s. This time I've got Mitch on the line who wants to talk about, about his plan. Um, Mitch, why don't you give us a little bit of background? You had sent me um, sort of a detailed plan on, on what you want to do as far as buying businesses and you wanted to get some of my feedback uh, about some of your ideas. Why don't you describe to us what you were contemplating?
1: Yeah. So basically I'm looking at trying to transition from my corporate uh, job that I have right now, Mm -hmm. looking to, for a couple goals in mind in that transition. One of the goals is to um, have more control over my own schedule and my own time uh, as being a business owner. That's number one. Number two is trying to set up um, a better income stream for retirement, whether that be build a business and sell it or be able to build a business and then be able to Uh, have someone be assisting in running the business so I could kind of partially retire at some time in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. So those are really the two big goals is have that uh, additional freedom and then to be able to build some retirement uh, income.
0: Okay. And, and those, I mean, those goals are pretty consistent with a lot of people who have this idea. So, so what, what you, you want to make this happen sooner rather than later. I think you have a certain timeline in mind, don't you?
1: I, I do, um, you know, I'm in the mid fifties, and I think it's time to make a change now, mm-hmm. and and set and and do things, uh, make that change, and start to build that that the business and to be able to set me up
0: uh, for a partial retirement or a different lifestyle. Mm. Okay, and so have you started looking at businesses, or I've done a little bit
1: of looking. Really, what I've been doing the last really three months has been trying to learn. Mm-hmm. uh learn I, you know i bought your your course and went through it I uh, read some other books um listened to a lot of different people's podcasts and done a lot of study and research on everything from you know the buying process to business structures and 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 uh trying to just learn uh with a goal of really moving forward in in 2020 mm-hmm. to to understand trying to understand my strategy uh you know how 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 to how to go about it how to get enough understanding to not not make some of the uh, mistakes that could, could cost me. Cause I guess part of the part of the issue that I'm concerned with is risk management, right? So you, okay. you, you buy a business, you take your life savings or a good portion of your life savings and put it all on the line. And I just uh, want to make sure that I, I do things smart and have the right people around me to, to make sure I don't make mistakes that they have made or understood how not to make.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, I, I think that's, that's perfect because I mean, this is what brings people to the idea of buying an already successful business rather than starting one from scratch, right? I mean, if you were, were going to speculate or gamble with that money on trying to make something work, you'd be probably be thinking about starting a business. But the reason why we want to buy one that's already functioning is because we don't want the risk of not finding enough customers fast enough. Right so do you, have you narrowed down your what kind of business or what market that you know related to your experience maybe or
1: well my, my background has really been I'm an electrical engineer by training uh, along with the MBA and then done a lot of work with electrical systems and, and companies over my career so I really like the technology field uh, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be electrical, but I know that I'm not interested in retail, restaurant, um, any of those type of businesses really looking for something that's, well, I, I think more on the technology side or more more technical in nature, mm-hmm. uh, but doesn't have to be that, you know, per se. Um, part of me just likes business. You know, I've been in business management for several years, so I, it's not just the technology that, that interests me, but certainly just business in general interests me.
0: Okay. But, so it, it sounds like where you're leaning is is probably going to be something that helps with your goal of time freedom because you're probably heading towards something that's like a business-to-business type of business. That I think so. I, I, runs, I, I, runs I do. I think business more business. Hours.
1: Yeah, more business hours related, probably business-to-business business and trying not to have the seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day type, type business uh, that you would be in more of a consumer or business-to-consumer type situation. Yeah.
0: So now you had, um, you had specified in your email to me a, a, sort of some details about the size of business and you were talking about either one business or multiple businesses and I thought that was kind of interesting because I honestly don't have a lot of people who right off the hop want to go out and buy more than one business. Can you give me some of the, some of the thoughts behind uh, what you were talking about there?
1: Sure. The, the idea was is how to minimize risk uh, and that was the idea. The idea is I'm looking to provide a certain amount of replacement income for my current salary mm-hmm. and I could do that by buying a, a, a I don't know if you call it a sm- small, medium-sized business and then do it that way but that takes a lot of capital, takes a lot of investment, to, i.e. a lot of risk or I could look at a plan to buy three businesses over the next couple of years a third of each size and be more manageable, less risk, and possibly be able to give into those with less, less debt, but end up in the same position at the end of that with uh, an income stream that would be equivalent. So that's really the idea is it better to buy one mm-hmm. large or three small kind of, kind of deal. And then how to make that transition work in either case. Right.
0: Well, I, I think that um, I think, this is interesting to talk about because um, if you talk about buying one bigger business, say the biggest business you can afford to buy, um, I've seen people do this before. And the problem that happens, of course, is if you put your last nickel into the deal, there's, there's no room to maneuver if there's some kind of bump, right? And so it, it does put you in a more precarious situation. Um, I know that for, you know, for a lot of people that buy a business, they they come in after an owner who maybe has had it for a while, who has not been sort of managing it or pushing it with any great degree of vigor. And so what what I've seen happen many times is that people will buy a business that isn't the biggest one they can afford. They'll they'll buy one that they feel comfortable with, and because they bring new kinds of ideas and skills into the business they're often able to increase the growth rate of that business. And, and so your time can become occupied with managing the growth. And you know, one of the common strategies that private equity groups, for example, do, one of, one of their very common strategies is to buy a business in an industry and then start rolling up is what they call it. So they'll start to buy right. other similar businesses to join them together. And there's no reason why you couldn't do the same thing, even with, with smaller businesses. Um, the opportunities, uh, and I've, I've seen this even in things like seafood restaurants, it, the opportunities start to come at you more quickly once you make the first acquisition. Because right. what, what's interesting is that from your point of view as a, as a person who wants to buy a business, you can see the businesses that are in the marketplace and you can identify them, you know, find, find them online and things like that. But the people that own those businesses can't see you. They don't have a way of, of searching online for an individual who might want to buy a business, right? And so what happens though, is once you do your first deal, then they can see you because they hear about it in the trade. If, if it's, you know, amongst the competing businesses, they go, Oh, that place got a new owner. And isn't that interesting? My, my friend Rick bought a seafood restaurant and then in very short order within a couple of years, two more people that owned seafood restaurants approached him saying, Oh, I see you bought this place and I see you're doing well. Would you consider buying my place? And so doing the first deal can actually be one of the things that creates the other opportunities.
1: I can see that being out there in the market uh makes yourself much more visible.
0: Yeah, and especially if if it's an industry that is uh, and what you're talking about something to do with technology or electrical or, you know, maybe equipment resale that has a service component like installation or maintenance or something. Uh, those businesses tend to have some kind of trade association, right? Where you're going to go and you're going to meet other people who may be competitors or similar businesses. And it creates an opportunity, you know, for networking and, and to find the next deal. One of the, um, one of the members of the, of the business buyer ad- adventure group coaching program, he's in, a, in an industry that has trade associations with meetings a couple times a year. That's one of the big places where he does his prospecting, because you know you, you you kind of you know corner somebody in cocktail hour and and sort of talk to them and, and find out if they if you think they might want to sell their business in the next little while. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit more about your target because you've you've kind of what i've written down here is b2b uh business hours technology and you've kind of left that sort of open right like i have could you name some of the different types of technology businesses that you think could fit into this framework we're building
1: sure it could be it could be uh electrical engineering company that provides Mm -hmm. engineering services for it could be manufacturers or industrial plants of various sorts. I think there's many different types of um, equipment suppliers, like you said, that may be supplying a certain niche type of equipment that also provides the not only the engineering, but the installation and service of that equipment Mm -hmm. also. Um, So I think there's a, a few different veins. Actually, Prior in my career, early on, I did, uh, I did start a business venture with three other, two, other gen, two other business partners, and it was an industrial automation company mm-hmm. um, about I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or more. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years, and unfortunately, um, probably didn't know much about business, but the real issue was more about didn't know about selecting partners. <clears throat> so it was uh, a very difficult partnership arrangement. So I decided to sell my part of the business out at that time and and leave and go back to a corporate job.
0: Yeah. Automation, robots, automated handling of stuff. This is something that has a big trend behind it because of demographics.
1: Yeah. And I've always been fascinated with technology like technology. So that's certainly something that was looking into, it seems like there's not as many of those in the, I guess, the, the micro smaller businesses, those tend to get big very quickly. Yeah. And I but, say big, I'm still saying small, relatively small, but you know, big comparison wise.
0: What, what about um, geography and footprint? Are you willing to relocate for the right opportunity?
1: Yes, it just that seems difficult, <laughs> but but probably so because I don't think we plan on staying in the region or at We we, we really want to live in the southern southern part of the U.S. So, southern eastern part of the U.S. That's mm-hmm. uh, where we want to kind of retire and be at. So that would probably be the geographical area uh, to be in. I know a lot of a lot of different uh, types of companies also have a pretty broad virtual footprint when it comes to engineering services for sure.
0: Um, right. Because and, you can deliver a lot of this stuff. Remote. That's
1: right. Right. So you can have customers all over the U S and be based, be based somewhere near a good, a good airport.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the people that I've worked with who, who have undertaken these searches, um, they kind of, they kind of do one of two sorts of things they either focus on a geography. So I know one fellow who is focused on a, a pretty tight geography and he'll look at any business of a certain size, right? Certain sales revenue. And as a result of that, he ends up making hundreds of contacts with, with businesses because it's, it's really a numbers game. And the drawback to that is that, every time he's confronted with a new industry he hasn't looked at before, um, he has to go and educate himself and learn about that business. Um, because every, every business has a certain kind of different way that they do some things, right?
1: Right. Um,
0: the, the other more precise sort of surgical plan is to, is to very tightly narrow down that business type and to the point where there are, you might only have a dozen prospects in a state, but if you're talking about the Southeast of the U.S., you could expand your search to 10 or 12 states. Right. Right. And, and then it becomes very easy to, to almost do a, a sales process, to, to reach out to those owners individually and see if there might be some opportunities for you.
1: I guess that was kind of one of my questions is, is do you see that m- more businesses are bought proactively through research and, and finding finding the opportunities of the ones that are almost like not for sale um, versus brokers, going to brokers online searches and brokers that way?
0: So there, there's no reliable data. To, to know these things for sure. It's just anecdotal in my experience from when I had my brokerage office and from the way, you know, the people I talk to every day. Um, and the reason why there's no reliable data is because a lot of businesses will be sold in an asset sale format. And so what happens is somebody registers a new corporation or LLC with their state government and that company is recorded as a new enterprise by the government. And so from the government's point of view it's a startup. And then that new enterprise buys the assets of another business and then that other entity, you know, the seller once he and his accountant are done with the tax returns and things, maybe he winds it up. And down at the government office it's recorded as a business closing. And so the what we have is a big number of business startups and business closures in every jurisdiction, but it's not that transparent how many of these are actually a result of business sales but okay. based on what i've seen and based on the people i talk to is generally about 80% of businesses that change hands do so without an intermediary so it's it's people who know each other who do a deal parents passing businesses on to children for example Um, it's, it's people who have some, a sudden health issue. And so they ask their friends at the local Rotary Club meeting, if anyone would like to buy their business and a deal is made somehow, um, or people that go and do direct outreach. So, you know, at the bigger end of the market, if you start to look at businesses that have multiple millions in revenue and and earnings of half a million in EBITDA, um, You know, those people are always getting solicited by the private equity groups and private investment funds, uh, family offices and organizations like that, because they're looking for businesses that are big enough where they can deploy a bigger chunk of their capital and it's big enough to support a professional manager. So there's nonstop solicitation and contacts and outreach going on in all kinds of different levels of, of business um, and in the, the sort of the main street space, the smaller businesses, um, you know, those business owners are being solicited by business brokers all the time. And so they're certainly aware that there is a market for people buying and selling businesses. Um, let, let's just look at it from the, the point of view of a business owner. You know, if, if something and, and, the, the big reasons why someone puts a business up for sale, number one is, is burnout and fatigue, boredom, right? I've been running this business for 20 years, I'm tired of it. I, it doesn't excite me anymore, right? That's, that's number one. And then you've got divorce, poor health, the need to relocate and retirement in no particular order. So only one of those five is something that's planned for retirement. The other, the other four, are personal circumstances that creep up on people, and sometimes appear suddenly. And so, when a business owner realizes, "Hey, I, I'm no longer feeling like I'm able to run this business the way I have been," and, and a lot of business owners are people who are a little bit perfectionist, and they have a certain way to do things. And they have a tr- they have trouble delegating, and you know, you you we've all met these people, right? And they they like to control things. And so stepping back and letting a manager run things is often not an option because they'll, they'll keep trying to micromanage. And so, so they decide it's time for me to go. I need to sell the business. They know that the broker is waiting there. They know that the broker can help them sell the business, but they also know the broker comes with a price tag. And so a lot of the times what they'll do is they'll try to figure out, do I know someone who might want to buy my business? So maybe they remember, oh, there was a guy with a similar business in the next state and I met him at a trade show or something and maybe he'll want to grow into my state by buying my business. Or maybe I've got a friend, like I said, down at the Rotary Club or something like that. And they will try to identify someone who may want to buy their business. And if they can't, if they can't figure out how to do a deal, then they may go to the broker and and there are exceptions to everything. There are some people that go straight to a business broker, but in general, a lot of business owners feel that if they're smart enough to build and run their business, that they're smart enough to do a transaction with the help of their attorney and their CPA and all that kind of stuff. And so if you are one of the people they know, you have an opportunity to look at the business. And that's where the prospecting strategy of reaching out to people, to people whose businesses are not quote unquote for sale comes from. Because you can reach out to them and they can tell you, I'm sorry, my business isn't for sale. And then one of those things I mentioned could happen to them suddenly three months later. And, and now they know someone who might want to buy their business.
1: Okay. Makes, makes sense.
0: Yeah. And and so it really almost becomes kind of like a sales process. You know, if you, if you were a sales rep for some kind of piece of machinery uh, and you were, your job was to sell them, what you would be doing is you would be finding out who might use this machinery and make a list, right? And then start contacting those people. And what you are selling as a business buyer is you're selling an exit opportunity for someone who has a very illiquid asset, which is a business. It's hard to find the right match between a buyer and a seller. So you're offering them a way to to exit, which at the right moment in time becomes a solution that they want because they've decided they need to move on.
1: So not very familiar with the business sell buy and sell market, but I've heard numbers as high as 80% of businesses that could be sold or never sold because either they don't find a buyer or they can't find the right buyer or the the seller can't wait um, and they end up just being closed. And it just seems like hard to believe that there'd be that many businesses that have a customer base and an income stream that would be that difficult to find buyers for.
0: Well, the statistics that talk about how many businesses go up for sale that never end up selling. That's not the global market because remember I just said, we don't actually know how many businesses precisely are changing hands. The, those statistics come from the ones who end up listing on a business for sale website. So outfits like biz Buy sell or businesses sale.com. Those guys have relatively good statistics because they know, who engages them to put up a listing and they can keep track and survey their, their customers to find out who actually sold and who didn't. right? And so if we think about that business owner, he's decided he wants to sell and he's already scoured his own personal network trying to find someone to buy and he doesn't find anyone. So he responds to one of those solicitations from a business broker. He goes over to the business broker's office and the business broker says, you know, I can help you this is my process. Well, if that business broker has been working closely with a couple of buyers who he knows have capital available, good credit, access to bank loans and want to do a deal and they're interested in a business like this, that business could end up being sold before it even gets listed on a website because the business brokers interest is in doing a deal as quickly as he can because he gets a commission, right? And so if there is no one like that or if all of his sort of ready made buyers at hand don't want to buy the business, then he's going to have to find someone new. And so that's when the advertising plan comes into place. So then it gets onto that website where it can attract inquiries from other people. And so so by now you should be getting an idea of which companies end up on the website. Right. Yes. <laughs> there's there's been multiple filters uh, of of good businesses that have been cherry picked off this this you know journey, and now we're at the end of the journey where we have to go looking for a stranger, um, who might be interested, and so, the 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 business gets listed for sale, and if it's a good business, and you know a good business is one that solves one of the buyer's problems. And and you articulated what the buyer's problems are. They want to control their own destiny, control their own time, have a better source of income. So when I had my business brokerage office open and whenever a seller came into my doors with a business that was open Monday to Friday, nine to five with over six figure total income to the owner, I wanted to list that because that business would have the biggest population of buyers because that ticks most of the boxes for most of the buyers. They don't want to work seven days a week. They don't want to, you know, earn a meager income. They want to have an income of at least six figures. And so that's the one people want. So if that kind of business gets onto the website, it's going to attract a whole bunch of buyers. And so even if you're one of those buyers, now you face the problem of competing with other people to buy the business who you know, could potentially drive up the purchase price. Um, but the, the, pr- the other problem with those websites is that there's no um, guarantee or, or no way of assuring the quality of the person who is the business broker. And so here's a problem that happens in the business brokerage industry because commissions tend to be very healthy. You know, most business brokers is like 10% commissions. Um, When I was in it, I charged 12% of business value and 6% of any real estate value if we happen to sell a piece of property with it. Um, And so when people start talking about businesses that are worth half a million or a million dollars, you do the math quickly and you go, wow, that's a big check. And so a lot of people are drawn into that business brokerage industry. And anyone can go out and start passing out business cards. In some states, you have to have a license. Often, it's a real estate license. So the licensing regimen isn't really even geared towards what they're doing as a business broker. And so you will get people who don't really know what they're doing as a business broker or people who are new and inexperienced. They're going to take on listings and put things on those websites that a more experienced broker would probably not waste their time with because they know that it's likely not going to sell either because it has some kind of significant business model problem or owner dependency issue or customer concentration problem. You know, I've seen businesses that do um, over a million dollars in sales where 40 or 50% of sales is to one customer, right? that That's a big problem for a buyer. Because that one customer, you know, if they went away, the whole thing falls apart. And so, right. So a lot of those statistics about how many businesses go unsold those are the ones it's It's much rarer for a really good business to go unsold because there's a lot of buyers out there in in my experience, I guess that was they they outnumbered. that the was stores. one of my yeah
1: okay that was that was one of my questions or one of my ponderings was if there's so many businesses and it's so hard to sell a business, then it's just a good strategy for me to get into. But knowing that one day I'm going to want to sell that business, right? (laughs) And Um, and, and Profit from that.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, here's the, here's the problem with business. Most business owners is that most business owners have no succession plan or they actually do, but I've got, I can tell you what their succession plan is. It's I will live forever and always run the business. Like, that's not my goal. So, <laughs> You know, but, but most of the people who, who get into business who build one from scratch or some of the people who, who buy a business, what they do is they put all their effort and steam into getting the business going to the point where they actually have that income because that's their problem as a person starting a business is how do I get to an income I can live on quickly, right? And then once they get to that income level, well, well then they've won they've achieved their goal and now they have an income. Not many of them think through to the other end. And so they do things in their business that makes it more difficult to sell, either in the way that they manage things or the lack of proper systems and all that kind of stuff. Um, But if you knew from the day you got into business that your intention was to sell the business and that there's no guarantee in the marketplace for buying and selling businesses of finding someone who wanted to buy it. Well then what you would do is you would develop your own buyer. And, and so that's a much more sophisticated business owner who's actually putting into place a succession plan. So I do uh there's a, there's a franchise brand that gets me to come and do a conference call every quarter with them, with their owners. And this is one of the concerns that a lot of those people have. And so what they've seen happen many times is that a business owner who's getting into their mid to late fifties will hire uh, someone onto the management team and then give them certain benchmarks for performance. And if they hit them, they'll start to give them some equity in the business. You know, and then this manager all of a sudden owns 10, then 20, then 30% of the business. And then when you start to get, close to the halfway mark, then they go to the bank and they make a deal and they buy out the rest of the company. So that, that owner actually developed their own buyer from within and the bankers love it because now they don't have to wonder if the buyer is going to be able to run the business. Because for many of these cases, the buyer is someone who, uh, who is already running it. And so that's pretty clever strategy well well it is and and it just makes sense because if you sit down and think this is my long-term plan then that kind of thing makes sense right most of the time though like i said for the majority of the small business owners you know uh, michael gerber wrote that book e myth uh, and the, the the newer updated one is e myth revisited and it's, i think it's one of the most important business books out there but in the book he argues that Um, most people who own a business are not actually entrepreneurs. They're technicians who have tried to gain more freedom by exploiting their skill in creating their own business. So, you know, a very simple um, example of that would be the auto mechanic who decides to open his own garage. Right. And so he opens his own garage because he knows how to turn the wrench and fix the cars. And so, starts off by himself. And then as he grows the business, he's answering the phone, he's greeting the customers, he's ordering the parts, he's counting the inventory, he's sweeping the floor, he's fixing the cars. And then he gets busy enough that he hires the second mechanic. And so the second mechanic starts working on cars, but he's still answering the phone, greeting the customers, ordering the parts, sweeping the floor. And then he hires the third one. And by the time there are three mechanics in the shop, he now is maxed out in his bandwidth for greeting the customers and ordering the parts and answering the phone and everything and and then the business just stays like that for twenty years and he never gets to go on vacation and he burns out or he decides one day it's time to retire and he sells the business because his skill set and everything has to do with fixing cars, not necessarily running and building businesses and so in 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 my experience and i've seen this countless times somebody who isn't even an auto mechanic someone who's like a middle manager from the phone company or something like that they will buy that business and they're not a mechanic so they never fix a car but what they do is they work on the systems and they they delegate responsibility and they make one person in charge of you know maintaining and counting the the battery and headlight bulb inventory and another person's in charge of you know, ordering parts and then they get another front counter person to greet the customers and they build the infrastructure so they can hire mechanic five, six, and seven, right? And then you start to really build this business because the person's bringing skills to the table that are about organizations, systems, and making strategic decisions for running the business. So in our universe of business owners, a big chunk of them are in that technician category, and so they go to work every day thinking that their, their job is to serve the customers instead of being the owner of a business and managing the asset to its highest and best use and best outcomes. yeah
1: I can definitely see that that's like, and that's not one that's one of the things I do not want to do. I don't want to become a a business owner that I don't want to buy a job as the old saying goes right? I'm not interested in buying a job I wanted to buy a business that i can I can be the strategic leader and work on growing and developing the business, not being the the technician every day
0: Well, you know just simply being aware of this stuff puts you ahead um there's a video on my YouTube channel uh, with a guy named Ian uh, in Prince Edward Island, Canada, who sold his business. And he started off as the technician and he evolved into the entrepreneur. And it's, it's a really great interview because he talks about how after a while running his business, he began to realize that there were certain things that he was missing out on. And so he started to invest in management programs where he would sign up and he would learn, you know, better ways to run the shop and, and better systems to put into place and, and eventually grew his business to the point where he turned it into something that people wanted to buy. And, and so it's really interesting because it, I think that's kind of a rare story. Um, I have not met many people like that, um, but, it, but it can happen, right? Once, once an awareness is, is uh, achieved.
1: One of your emails you put out over the last couple of weeks was based upon the gentleman that he was the the cash investor for a business with some partners that turned unfortunate and he ended up holding the bag and and was in a bad situation. And Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, that's, uh, another thing that's uh, concerning to me is trying to figure out how to, you know, buy the right business because so many of you see, whether it be customer base or whether it be the product they're selling just seem to be very shaky, very, um, seems like they could go away easy, could invest a lot of money. And then, and then a small change could, could basically evaporate the business.
0: Mm. And and this is the very reason why businesses, especially small businesses sell for such relatively low multiples. So, you know, uh, an apartment building, if an investor requires a 10% rate of return, which which is common in a lot of spaces in North America, um, you know, an apartment building guy wants a, a 10% rate of return. If if it's got a hundred thousand dollars of cash flow, we divide by 0. 0.1. That's the 10%, and it equals a million. Right. So we know yep. the building's worth a million bucks. And so if you then look at it the other way, what it's saying is that the building sold for 10 times its cash flow. And so the buyer of that apartment building recognizes that the building has certain risks, but is stable enough that he's willing to bet the next 10 years of cash flow to acquire it. Meaning that he's confident things will still be going well in year 11 where theoretically he's recouped his money. And that would be if you paid cash, right? If you wrote a check for a million bucks, right. it would take you 10 years to get your million back. In year 11, you'd make money. And with, with leverage and everything, it, it, it isn't quite like that, but it, this is a theoretical concept. So someone's willing to bet 10 years of cash flow on that apartment building. Most small businesses sell for one and a half, two, two and a half maximum, three times. So, what that means is that the buyers of these businesses are only willing to bet three years two and a half two years and 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 like one of the exercises I do in one of my live sessions is I say to people, "Think of a business near where you live, and you know if it's a gas station or a convenience store or something like this um, or a little retail store and I'll say, "Who's willing to bet me?" $20 that that store will be open in 12 months time. Most of the hands go up because it's very easy to conceive that the corner store near where they live is still going to be open in 12 months. And then I'll say, who's willing to bet me $50. It'll be open in 24 months. And a couple of hands usually go down. And then I say, who's willing to bet me a thousand dollars is going to be open in three years. And, and like half the hands will go down. And so there's actually some sort of instinctive gut understanding of of the riskiness that's involved in these businesses. And so so it's kind of an interesting exercise, but if you're still convinced that there's risk there, the way that we address it, you know, the price is one thing, the fact that it doesn't sell for a very high multiple, but the structure of the transaction is the other way we address it. So I gave an example earlier of of a business that had one large customer, right? So if I wanted to buy that business, what I would probably do is I would make an offer where there was a very large seller note. Maybe half, maybe even 60% of that business's value I want the seller to finance. And I'm going to make payments every month to him. But in that note there will be a clause that says, if we lose that customer, the balance of the note is forgiven. So if the biggest risk concern actually occurs, I just bought the business at a discount. But if I keep that customer long enough to pay off the note, well, you know, then I got the business I bought. He sold me the business with the big customer and I kept the big customer and I made money with the big customer and, and I eventually paid off the note. So the the seller is sharing in the risk that the big customer could go away. And what is frustrating is when a buyer is educated, knows what they're doing and they can properly assess risk and they find a deal and they make an offer which makes sense for them and then they lose the deal to the guy who's willing to sign the SBA loan and get 90% financing by putting up his house. And you look at that other buyer and you say, wow, you know, th- does he even understand what he's getting into? And and it's frustrating, but you, you, you basically, you have to figure out what you're willing to do and, and only make an offer based on what you're willing to do. Other people are, there's always going to be other people who are foolish or people who will overpay and it's frustrating and it does drive people out of certain markets. So one of the things that I've talked about quite often, you know, people will notice a phenomenon in a city where all the convenience stores, for example, seem to be opened by people that are new to the country. Well, there's a reason for that. If, if you're immigrating to a new country and you have a language barrier and you can't work in the field that maybe you've studied in your homeland, well, you still need to get an income somehow to feed your family. And a business like a convenience store, maybe you can run even though you have a language problem, like a barrier to communication. And so people who need that kind of business are willing to overpay what a local person might pay for the business. And so you can actually see the effect of this kind of thing on a certain type of business in certain markets and what it what it means is that you just have to withdraw to the areas where you have the greatest expertise in the types of businesses that you're talking about you're talking about businesses that are more complex where an owner has to have some degree of technical expertise right which you have and so the field of buyers is going to be shrunk by the skill set required the you know for, for many years, people always ask me, what's the, what's the market like for small businesses? And it took me a long time to realize that there was no such thing. You know, there's there's a, a market for four door used cars. There's a market for three bedroom houses because there's a lot of them and there's a lot of buyers and a lot of sellers. Every business is unique. And so, you know, just down the street from your house could be an incredibly profitable flower shop you're probably not going to buy it because it it doesn't fit with you and your students.
1: All right? So when you talk about business value, one of the things you were, you were talking about real estate mm-hmm. and investing. And so what, one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, business is a good investment, but as I look at a lot of these small businesses, say you have a small business doing 400,000 in revenue, it's going to give you a, $100,000 in in owner discretionary income. Uh, but basically when you spend your $400,000, you buy that business, you basically have a salary, mm-hmm. but your investment's really not making you anything. I mean, you'd be better off keep my job and just put your investment in real estate and make your 10% because you're really not getting a return. So struggling at valuing some of these investments when it comes to business because of that.
0: And th- This is one of the biggest issues because there are a tremendous number of these quote unquote small businesses out there that are really just people owning a job but because they're registered and they have a you know corporation or llc or whatever everyone calls it a business but if that you know and and there's even some that are worse where somebody who has the skills to earn 80 grand in a job they're running their own thing and only taking 60 i call those hobbies because people are <laughs> right they're contributing labor to make it work, right and so that that's the challenge and and I see it all the time because when I, when sellers step forward, you know I meet some sellers who read my book and they want my help to sell the business on their own, and they get me to do evaluation and and I show them what the business is worth, and sometimes those conversations end up talking about how they're going to wind up liquidate, et cetera, their business, because there's a realization that there's not enough there. there. There's a salary there, but if somebody bought the stuff, if somebody bought the assets, they wouldn't be able to service the debt and take a salary. That, that's an extreme example. That's the one I call dead, zombie capital. You've got machinery and equipment tied up with a bunch of value that doesn't produce enough of a return. As an investor.
1: Right.
0: So, but the the sad cases are when I, I meet people who say, I need help to sell my business. I've had it listed with three different brokers over the last two years. My wife has a chronic illness. I'm trying to get out of this so I can, you know, be her caregiver. And the first broker told me I could sell it for this. The second broker has told me I could sell it for this. And we meet people and no one's making any offers. And then and then I'll go and I'll do the evaluation. I'll find out that there's some error that's been made normalizing the financial statements. And I'll come back and I'll say, you know, it's only worth a third of this. And here's why. And, and those are really tragic conversations because, because, you know, somebody may have thought that they were a millionaire. And I'm now telling them that they're actually only a, a 300,000 error or something. And, and it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, I'll, I'll show them. And it's funny because it's, it's sort of like an exercise in empathy, trying to put yourselves into someone else's shoes. If, if any of these guys had sat down and said, what if I was going to buy this business? And they looked at what the down payment would have to be and what the bank credit terms would be and everything. They would be able to figure out, they're smart people They run a business. They would be able to figure out that it won't work. But but for whatever reason, a lot of the times, you know, and maybe it's the advertising that some of the business brokers do. They're always talking about, I help you sell your business for maximum dollar for top dollar, et cetera, et cetera. People start thinking about themselves. And it's funny. I had this cafe owner once. And I think, I think I gave this example in, in the business buyer advantage course um, I I told her her business was probably worth a certain figure. And she said, no, no, I need more. And I said, well, then you're going to have to earn more money. So I said, why don't you implement a policy that no one's allowed to buy one cup of coffee. Everyone has to buy two. And she just looked at me like I'm crazy. Like I was crazy. She said, well, most people don't want to. And I said, I said, so you have to consider what your customers want? And that's when she started to, to realize which, what was happening as, as a business broker. I was going to take her business. I was going to box it up and call it inventory and put it on my shelf. And I had to think about the buyer. Is the buyer going to want to buy this thing? Is it going to be pretty enough, right? Is it going to make sense from the numbers point of view? And, and that for some reason doesn't translate in, in, in some of the businesses that go up for sale. The, the seller is thinking about themselves and what they want. And, and that's probably also one of the reasons why we have a large number of businesses that don't end up selling.
1: So it seems like you need to get to this, the bigger, bigger EBIT value businesses or to be able to actually have a business that's going to produce a return beyond paying yourself as the manager of that business.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is a market of people out there who went, um, you know, there's a market of people out there, like, like the example I gave of the newcomers to the country, right? They, they need an income and for whatever reason, they can't find a job that pays enough. And so for that person, it makes sense to buy what is essentially a job because they need an income. And so that person might want to make a deal for the business that has $80,000 of cash flow. And And for that person in their situation, it will be a good move but you're not in that situation. For you, it's gonna be something very different. You you have certain comforts and position and prestige in your existing career, right? With the company that you're with. And so when you acquire something, it's gotta be big enough that it's gonna replace your salary because you're a specialist in a technical field. So, you have to be able to draw a paycheck that that is equal to what you 're worth in the marketplace, um, and then, because you 've invested money and borrowed money to invest if you borrow from the bank or even from the seller, you then have to make sure that this business can service that cash flow the the debt service right the cash flow can service the debt service so yeah it's not going to be you know a business with Five hundred thousand in revenue and you know an SDE of a hundred and ten grand. It's probably something with an SDE north of a quarter million. Yeah, because I think
1: I, I, what I hear is you need you need two x your your serve, debt service to, as as a minimum to be able to be viable.
0: I I you know when I was brokering commercial debt over 10 years ago, at that moment, the banks I was dealing with wanted to see apartment building owners have a debt service coverage ratio of 125%, which meant that if they committed to making $10,000 of mortgage payments, they wanted to see that the building was earning 12.5, so that there was wiggle room, right? A business is riskier than a building. So I teach people, you want even more debt service coverage. I say, ideally you want two. So if your business is cash flowing after you're paid, if your business is cash flowing a hundred grand, you don't want to commit more than 50 to debt service. Because if you have a 10% drop in sales, you could easily have a 50% decline in profit. right? And so what, what terrifies me all the time is when people show me these term sheets from SBA lenders where they've got 1.15 debt service coverage. I mean, that's lower than what those banks 10 years ago wanted on the apartment deals. I mean, the, the, when you apply a huge amount of leverage to something as risky as a business, you're asking for, for to hit a pothole and have a real bad accident. And, and that's why there's got to be seller financing involved, subject to offset. And, you know, ideally you have certain clauses and conditions where that seller note maybe is, is subrogated or postponed to the bank under certain conditions. Um, in non non-guaranteed situations, like, you know, in Canada, there's no SBA. And so, the banks look at these deals very differently. Um, they look at the risk involved, and it's it's very common for a bank to say we will lend this amount if the seller will do this amount, and if these ratios on the balance sheet aren't met, the seller has to stop being paid until they are. And so, so what the bank is doing is they're protecting themselves by protecting the cash flow of the business. And they're, they're making sure that if there are these problems, that there are mechanisms already in place to, to hold back the cash in the business, to keep the business alive. Because if you, if you, if you take too much cash out of the business and you start to you know, lack operating capital, all of a sudden you get into this death spiral where things just start to go down. And you start making decisions about, instead of making decisions that are good for the long-term success of the business, you're just trying to get your hands on cash. And, and that's a got whole it. other, that's a whole other conversation. You know, that's, that's when, you know, in, in a very simple example, that's when somebody who owns a restaurant does a deal with a, a merchant cash advance lender who says, I'll give you 20 grand to cover your payroll, but now you got to give me 6% of everything that goes through your credit card terminal until you have paid me back 25 grand. And now in the next week, the guy's trying to run his business on ninety-four percent of his credit card receipts instead of a hundred. And it just it just gets worse and worse and worse. But I I mean I'm the conversation's kind of turned gloomy.
1: <laughs> no. No, the, not at all. No. The, the, <laughs> I don't feel that. The,
0: the 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 thing that's great about this is that the customers, the sales, the cash flow are there. It's just a matter of putting it together correctly so that you know that you've got the basis for what you're gonna build upon. You know, the, the reason for buying a business is because you know you can do more with it. If you buy a business today that's profitable and you finance it in such a way that you know that you can service the debt, and then you get in there and you start applying your skill and you grow the sales by 20%, all of a sudden it becomes a really great deal because of what you've brought to the table. And it's that it's that creative energy and and ideas and everything. That's what really, you know, creates the opportunity for you. You know, you you take that thing you buy today and then 15 years from now when you start to get to the point where you want to sell it, when you get into your, you know, in mid to late 60s, you know, it's so much more than the thing that you bought.
1: That's my goal for sure. Increase the value and then be able to benefit from that. Yep. Awesome.
0: All right, Mitch, thanks for calling in and, and thanks for being a student of Business Buyer Advantage. I hope you enjoyed the program. I
1: did. I enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you, David.
0: No problem. Um, I'm quite surprised actually. Almost all the people that have been calling in for this series this year have taken the program. So it's, oh, it's, is that right? <laughs> it's everyone who listens is going to think it's a big advertisement. And, and oh. <laughs> it is. People should sign up. com. Take the course. Yep. Have a great night, Mitch. Okay. You too. All
1: right. Bye-bye.